Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're so grateful that um, you reach out in love um, with this unmeasurable grace, Lord, and this unstoppable love with which you love us, um, that you would do that, and that in doing that, you, you prove that you're not just a God who creates the world and walks away, but you're a God who's active amongst his creation to redeem what we broke. We thank you for that. We thank you for the blessing of the understanding of that knowledge, and we just pray over this time now that it would be a time marked by your presence, Lord. Um, that it would be a time holy, and not just a holy time that we can look back on, but Lord, that this would become a springboard for the rest of our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can probably tell by looking at me that I'm big into sports, right? You're thinking, yeah, football, right? (laughs) No, I'm big into cycling. I know it's because I like nerdy sports, and so cycling fits all of that. Uh, So, Part of that, though, is cycling is this amazing sport where Kobe Bryant does not just come out and play basketball at your park and just shoot hoops with you. And you can't get your basketball one day and decide, you know what, I'm going to go over to the Staples Center. I'm going to play basketball there. I'm going to shoot hoops there. Cycling is a sport that the world famous, I know what you're thinking, world famous cyclists, please, but the most famous cyclists, the most well-known, ride the same routes and streets that you ride. And there's a big race, I think of it as the Super Bowl of cycling for the United States. It's called the Amgen Tour of California. That's, right? That's the typical response. We've heard of Amgen, but what are you tying Tour of California? Many of you don't know that the Tour de France had just wrapped up and that Chris Froome is the first Brit and ever win it more than once. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, but, so, but cycling is a big sport to me. And in 2013, I got to go VIP to the Amgen Tour of California, one stage. And before, you get to hang out in the VIP section with all the other cycling nerds, and you get to drink as much cycling coffee as you can because bikes and brew goes together. And, and so you get hyped up on caffeine, and you've got all these other nerdy friends with you. Oh, cyclists. And we're talking about all these names of people who, are they still racing? Are they still on? Did they drop out already? Because where you are in the VIP area, the cyclists can come in and hang out and drink the same coffee that you're drinking, sit on the same sofa that you're sitting on, everything there. And so you get this cool, um, what's, what's it called? It's like a, a book with all the information in it, program, thank you. Um, you get this cool bike bulletin. No, you get this cool program. It's got all these pictures with their sponsors, and you can get autographs and stuff. And we're standing there, and we're talking, and I'm, so we're standing about this far away from some guy who looks really familiar. We, we know we know him from somewhere, but we don't know where we know him from, you know, one of those situations. And so we're all hypothesizing about, well, where is he from? Who is this guy? And it just, I have this problem. It comes to my head and it just comes out my mouth. And I say, he looks like a roided down version of Barry Bonds. This guy is walking and he stops and he looks at me into my soul. And then he just keeps walking. And so later on, we're finding out who we get to ride with and stuff because we're not on bikes. We're not, I'm not that fit at all. But we ride in cars, and you get to go along with all the cyclists and stuff. And it's, it's like a moving carnival. It's really cool. And so we're looking at their car list and who all is going on in what car and everything like that. And I'm going down the list. And guess whose name is on the list? Barry Bonds. The Barry Bonds, the guy who doesn't have any World Series rings but has a home run record with the asterisk next to it, that guy 
who's now officially, he's a lot smaller. He's off the roids. He's smaller. He, he's, he, we're, I'm spending the day with this guy. This guy I just said, he, he looks like the roided down version of Barry Bonds. Even though he's not on roids anymore, he's still four times as big as me. Even, even though he's not playing baseball anymore, he makes more money in a year than I will see in my entire lifetime. Even though he's not in baseball anymore and the courts finally just cleared whatever that was, he's still more well-known than I am. And I got to spend the day with this guy that my first impression was what I said to him. And I know he heard it. So do you know what I did? I went and asked for a picture. Because that'll fix everything, right? And you know what he did? He took it with me. So I have a picture on a phone somewhere of me with Barry Bonds. <laughs> and I'm an A's fan. So really, what business did I have asking him? You know why I asked him for a photo, though? Because he's a celebrity. He's famous. And I thought, you know what? I have a lot of friends who are still blind to all the wrongs that he did as a professional baseball player and think he's amazing, and they've never got a photo with him. But I'll take one, because he's famous. So I got my picture with the famous person. And we've all got this desire in our hearts. You can see it in our culture. We all want to be better known than we are. We don't simply want to fit in. We want to stand out in a good way. You have reality television where the, we'll call them most interesting people in our society all get locked in a house together with cameras for our entertainment because they want to be famous. These people will go out and make fools of themselves on impossible obstacle courses because they want to be famous. And I've heard people even baptize this unholy desire where they say, you know what, if I was just a little famous, I could have a bigger impact for the kingdom of God. If people just knew who I was, if I was just famous in this one way, I could make a bigger difference for God. I'm not talking Prince famous either. I'm talking like the Avett brothers famous. That's fine. But I just want to be more famous. And I hear these people say this thing. And it's, it's both a non-Christian desire and unfortunately it's a Christian desire. But as a Christian, our overriding motivation, our overriding passion should never be to make ourselves famous. Because you see, we understand that that's a broken idea. Ever since Adam and Eve, even, you see it in them. We are all tenants who want to be owners. We are all people who want more than what we have. Whether it be money, whether it be prestige, whether it be face value, whether it be fame. We always want more. We want to be known. And we think even, unfortunately, in the church, we can't do a, a good, healthy ministry if we're not famous. And so we leave it up to the people we know, the people whose photos are on the website as staff here. We leave it to them to do. There's this understanding that every Christian should be able to look past ourselves to Christ. Our main driving motivation should be to make Christ famous. And so we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about how our overriding passion should be to make Christ famous because he alone is worthy of that. So go ahead and open your Bibles um, to Romans 16. We are going to finish up. I promise we'll get there. Romans chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one out of the back of the seat in front of you. It's page 951. That was one of the things I really liked when I first came to Olive Branches because I used the English Standard Version and the page numbers are the same in my Bible as they are on the slide. So that was, that's why I'm a member here now. <laughs> the first thing I want to talk about though is I've got some names and I think this was kind of a trick to be played on me because the name we're going to start with is my name. 
It's not me. I'm not that old. I promise. I am only 26. But I share a name with this guy. And so I think it's funny that the first text that I have to look at has my name in it. We're going to start in verse 21. Timothy. That's my fellow worker greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosopater, my kinsmen. I want to talk about this just briefly. We're going to look at the names and then we're going to move down a little bit more intricately, but we're going to do big picture. There's this big thing in the text, and I call these the faithful footnotes, these people here, because Timothy, if you've ever read your table of contents or you know your Bible very well, he gets two books. But in this, he gets a mention and he has to share one verse with three other people. And so, for these people who are being named, it's not about being known to them. It's about being faithful to God and his kingdom. And so we call these people, I love this term, Brent used it last week, so we're going to use it again, serving saints. These are the people who can look beyond themselves and give of their time and energy to be a part of the work of God. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosopater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. There are all these names. And we, we looked at even more names last week. And it's hitting home, hopefully, for us, this understanding that no great man can do a great work without great people doing great things for him. You know, we all know that saying, behind every strong man is a strong wife. We don't? Okay. That's a saying. You need to remember it. It's important. It's a quote. So serving saints. But Paul could not have done his ministry unless he had his humble helpers. It cannot be left up to the professionals. Many of us think, well, I'm not a good speaker, or I don't have a good memory. Sometimes we think, well, I have a stutter, or things along these lines. I'm not gifted in this. I'm not a people person. I don't da-da-da-da. Another excuse. Here I am. Send them. This kind of mentality. It's serving saints. There's another type of saint, I think, that we need to distinguish between, and that's a sitting saint. That's the one who's not yet stepped into the game. That's the one who's not yet been so transformed by the gospel and made mature enough to serve. And a lot of the time, that's not the clergy's fault. That's our own fault for sitting around thinking, you know what, let them do it. Here I am, send them, serving saints. But here's the thing. Everyone is called to be a serving saint. No one is called to be a sitting saint. There's this understanding that even in scripture we have these faithful footnotes, these serving saints, and they're not doing it for the fame. They get one verse and they share it with other people. Everyone is called to be a serving saint. And here's a little fleshing out for you. If God has saved you, God has called you. Christianity is not being saved from something. While it's great that you are saved from that eternal separation from God, and you are saved from what we understand biblically to be an eternal punishment, which is hell, you're not just saved from that. It's not a punch your ticket and you get out of hell free card. You're saved to something. You're risen from the grave through the power of Christ so that you can live a life set on Christ that shows Christ to the world, so that you can live out a life, so that you can serve, you can be a part of God's redemption for his creation. One of my favorite passages when it comes to this is in Acts chapter 9. It's chapter 9 verses 20 through 25. I'm going to read it to you and be encouraged by this. 
It's talking about Paul when he's in Damascus. And immediately, he's been saved. He, he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called on this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. So they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. And this is the verse. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Do we have any names of the people who held that rope? Do we know those people? Are they famous now? They're in the book, but all they got was, but his disciples took him by night. These are people who saw the gospel for what it was, who saw the beauty of it, who saw the worth of it, and saw it as far greater than themselves. And because of these people whose names we don't know, but whose action we have recorded, Paul fulfilled his ministry. His most lasting ministry was not simply in the synagogues in Damascus. His most lasting ministry was all the letters he wrote that are now in our Bible. If it hadn't been for those nameless people in Acts, we wouldn't know who Paul was. We wouldn't have the letters that Paul wrote. You see, everyone is called to serve, but not everyone is called to be famous. And you always hear the famous people, too, saying it's a burden. They're under magnifying glasses the entire time. They're always being watched. They can't do anything in secret. And here's the thing. A lot of us think, well, I, I am called to be famous. I should be famous. And you know what? I think that, too. I should be famous. I'm at least as good looking, if not better looking, than Jason Mraz. And I play the guitar at least as good as, or if not better, than Khloe Kardashian. So what am I missing? <laughs> I should be famous. But once I came to the realization that before God, I am absolutely worthless, that changes your perspective on life. And it no longer becomes about you being known. It becomes about you making Christ known. And we'll see that even more fully here. But we need to understand that people of all shapes and sizes and from every walk of life are important to the kingdom of God. God values the merchant in search of fine pearls just as much as he values that man who had to serve in other people's fields just to try and make a living. The kingdom of God loves the prince just as much as the kingdom of God loves the poor man. And the kingdom of God is looking to utilize people from every walk of life. You don't have to be famous. You just have to be faithful. So we see that. The next one, I'm going to go from these, these kind of ideas of the names, and now I'm going to go on to what we call celebratory salutation. You can tell I'm Southern Baptist because I alliterate almost everything. It all has to, and I'm, there's going to be a poem later, I promise. But <laughs> celebratory salutations. This is where we look at the names themselves. Paul only has so much space in Romans. He only has so much space on his papyrus. And so the fact that he could time and time again give a little blurb or a little sentence about these people to show his relationship to them, to show their importance um, to the mission is fascinating to me. I find this really interesting. I find this as one of the most interesting things in this whole chapter. He takes the space to say something about these people. 
He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. And then he, he gives the pen, the voice of the pen to his, his scribe. He says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, I greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who's hosting me and to the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. So Paul only gets a sentence these, to, to explain these people. These people only get a sentence to have who they are revealed to this church, this audience. Now, I know about Timothy because uh, my name is Timothy, and if you didn't know, and my mother had this poster on my wall when I was younger, which haunted me for a long time, which broke down the actual meaning of my name. Timothy is Greek. It's two words. They're smushed together. We call that a compound. And it's Timao Theus, which Timao is Greek for I honor, I give honor. And Theus is God. So my name means I honor God. No pressure, Tim, but you, you know. <laughs> but, so Timothy, but let's look at that. That's Greek. Further down, we see Tertius, and Cordus, these are both Latin. These people come from different backgrounds, different stories. Now, outside of Timothy, how many of you know the background and story of Lucius, Jason, and Sosopater? Exactly, nobody. Tertius? Exactly. We know from some quandaries, we have some evidence to lend toward um, some knowledge of who these people are, but the primary understanding here is the only person who could be recorded in history outside of scripture is Erastus, the city treasurer. So this is the one person with a social standing in this entire, um, in the entire list here of names. But then we have Gaius. This sentence for Gaius is amazing. Gaius, this man of hospitality, he says, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. This guy who has hospitality, this guy who maybe looked at his life and said, you know what? I'm not as good a speaker. I'm, I don't have a bunch of knowledge. I'm intimidated when it comes to conversations about Christianity. But you know what I do have is a place for people to meet. I have a house. I have an apartment, maybe. I have, I'm renting a place. I have a garage. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to open up my house so that the kingdom of God can infiltrate my neighborhood. I'm going to open up my house so that the saints can come together and be encouraged and equipped to go out and make a difference. So maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, I'm not the best speaker. I don't have musical talent. I'm not a really good teacher. But I know so-and-so who'd probably be willing if I offered to lead a small group in my house. All I have to do is provide a house for a couple hours every week and maybe provide a snack or I can assign the snack to other members of the small group. Brilliant. There are many of us in here who could do that. We just need to take the step from being sitting saints to serving saints. If you have Erastus, the city treasurer, this one guy in the entire list who has a social standing where they are and He's not recorded as a name drop. Like, oh yeah, Erastus, the city treasurer. You know that guy who wears the fine linens and always has his hair perfectly in place and everybody knows him? He's a friend of mine. You have that guy, he says hello to you. It's not that at all. It's this Erastus, oh yeah, he's the city treasurer. He greets you as well. More important things are at hand than social status. 
So we have this guy who's actually probably middle to upper mid class, and he's a part of this as well. And then we have Cordus, this Latin name. We don't really know anything about him, and for all we know, he, he could just be called Cordus because the, the name before it, Tertius, is Latin for third, and Cordus is Latin for fourth. So he could just be saying Cordus because this is the next guy in line here. They're brothers maybe. They're siblings maybe. We don't know. But what we do know is that in this list of names, we have people who are known and people who we don't know. We have people who are probably from a good background, and we have people who are arguably from a harsh background. We have people whose fathers are likely not in the picture or were dead by the time they met Paul. We have people from all different kinds of backgrounds because God wants to use people from all different kinds of backgrounds so he can reach people from all different kinds of backgrounds. So one of the most interesting things here is the sentences. And it, made, it gets me thinking, if Paul explains these people in one sentence, we need to realize that there will be a time when our life is summed up in one sentence. And so it's the question, what will your sentence be? When I was in high school, I got to go to Boston, and among other things, we walked, is it the Liberty Trail or the Freedom Trail? Freedom Trail? We got to walk that cool trail through Boston, and one of the stops is, it's a cemetery. It's the oldest cemetery in America, and there, we have founding fathers in there, and, and all sorts of neat things. Um, saw Sam Adams, funny story about that, but I can't tell it from here, so ask me later. And... Um, I'm walking through though, and I'm the kind of guy who for some reason I read the headstones because I'm curious. And I'm walking and I read one and it's stuck with me to this day. And it's this, here's your poem. Complete she lived every scene of life, a tender mother and a loving wife. I don't know about you ladies, but if you have to have your life summed up in one sentence, I think that's a good sentence. Complete she lived every scene of life, a tender mother and a loving wife. When she was laid to rest, and I remember thinking she was really young to have passed away. They looked at her life and they said she was intentional. As we would say to this today, she lived life to the fullest. Complete she lived every scene of life. She was valued by her husband and adored by her children. Well, how do you determine what's the motivator for your sentence? Whatever the motivator for your life is. How do you determine the sentence? You determine the motivation for how you lived. People will sum you up in a sentence. What you do now determines how they'll remember you then. What they think of you now will determine what they think of you then. So what is the motivation for life? I think as Christians, our motivation for life should be the same motivation as Paul's motivation. And he's so kind as to wrap his letter up with this incredible text about how great the gospel of Christ is. This wonderful viewing and image of the value and the beauty and the glory that is to be seen and held and changes our lives in the gospel. He tells us his motivation. 
He uses this turning word. He's given us the credits. We've stayed through. The popcorn is out. And now, you know how you always wait through the credits for that one cool scene at the end of the movie in the theaters? Well, this is that really cool scene that Paul's only got so much space left. And so he wants to end it with something really important. He wants to give us something very valuable. His last words, he wants them to be heavy. And I think he achieves it. In verse 25, I'm just going to read it all because I can't, I can't do it in, one, in breaking it up. It's just, now to him who's able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen? Paul just, he doesn't pull any punches, but this is a knockout text. This is intense. He doesn't give you a chance to breathe. He just lays it out, this gospel, that's this amazing understanding in verses 25 through 27. And there's some key ideas here that I want us to understand and wrestle with and hopefully grasp. The first one, when he lays out this gospel, is that it's a gospel that strengthens us. He starts out this text, this verse, this passage with, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The gospel by its very nature should give strength. The gospel by its very nature should give salt, should give, not salt, should give encouragement. We should be bolstered by this, that we who, while we were yet enemies, Christ made a way. While we are worthless on our best day before him, Christ reached out. While we are absolutely enemies of the state, far off, not holding or being held to the covenant of peace, following the course of this world, destined for destruction, God reached out in his love, with this great love with which he loved us, and this immeasurable grace, and took hold of our lives. And when we submitted everything we had to him, he turned it around and gave us purpose, gave us value, gave us meaning. That is encouraging. That should be strengthening. The knowledge that all of that occurred because God loved us and now God wants to use us should strengthen us, but it also should strengthen us even in times of suffering. If you don't see God in times of suffering, you won't look for him in times of rejoicing. In James chapter 1, verse 6, or 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6, he, Peter lays out the gospel and then turning from that, he says, in this you rejoice, in the gospel you rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the gospel of Christ carries us through our trials, carries us through our stress. In 1 Peter 4.19 even, we have more here where, let me find it. I got it, I promise. First Peter 4.19, he's talking again. And he says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So our pain and our suffering, when we reflect on the gospel and we remember the goodness of it, should not deter us, but should encourage us to serving. But remember, it's not a strength that we find within ourselves. 
It's a strength from Christ. Now to him who strengthens you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus. And then the next is, it's a gospel which man preaches, Paul preached, and is offered by Christ. It's not an either or. It's not, it's all on us to sell it well and hopefully people will like what we say and then they'll convert. And it's not all God and his, his omnipotence and, and providence destined these specific people to come to him and be saved by him. It's the blessing and the responsibility that we are working in tandem with Jesus Christ to reach the lost. In Galatians 1.12, this is one of my favorite passages. Paul is writing to the Galatians, and he's a little upset to not, to really use an underwhelming term. Paul is the most angry you will ever find him in the New Testament here. And he's talking about this gospel, which is rooted and founded in Christ, not in man. We're not seeking man's approval. We're not trying to please man, because if we were still trying to please them, we wouldn't be a slave or a servant of Christ. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This gospel is not of us. This gospel is not us propelling our belief system and our ideas. This gospel is truth as determined by the one and only true God, creator, sustainer, friend, and redeemer. How encouraging is that? That we are working in tandem with the creator, the author of the universe in redeeming what we've broken. That we get to be used by him and that Christ is always with us. The gospel is a blessing and a responsibility for Christians. We're blessed with the knowledge of it and now we're given the responsibility of sharing the knowledge of it. Our lives should be channels through which God works to redeem his brokenness. And this isn't just for us now. This isn't just for this moment in history. We need to understand that the gospel is the consummation of history. Ever since the beginning of, of time, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and plunged humanity and all of creation into brokenness, separating us from this loving God, God has been at work to redeem it. God has been at work to make it right. So we have this understanding here from this text. Is, but now has been disclosed. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. This mystery, which is, it's not this mystery to be set on a shelf. It's this mystery that was kept secret for a long time. But has now been disclosed. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. According to the command of the eternal God. The gospel, all of creation was moving and longing for the presence of God. All of history and time was moving toward that wonderful weekend. Where Christ died on the cross. And rose from the grave. That weekend is the door through which all of creation steps from brokenness into redemption. That weekend is the reason we as Christians can say, I've been forgiven. My punishment was taken. It was paid in full. And he rose from the dead and now I have a new life. I have a purpose. All of creation, all of history was moving toward that. There's this wonderful text in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Peter is still talking about this salvation. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, 
inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel, the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. These mysteries, these truths to be known by the Christian, to be known by Christ's followers. The, the prophets, when they were writing these things, were looking to God and saying, is this time? Do I get to see this? Do I get to be an active, living part in this? Will I be breathing when this occurs? Is this moment happening now? And God said, it's not happening now. You're writing about a time to come. You're writing about the ultimate fulfillment. What's happening now is but a signpost telling us that something greater is coming. This is the consummation. All of history is wrapped around this gospel. All of history, every moment is defined by the gospel. Another thing that we've been hitting really hard, and I really appreciate, this is on my heart too. The gospel is not a gospel to be hidden. It's a mystery that was hidden for a long time. No fault of God's but has now been made known to all nations. It's meant for all men, and it was always meant for all men. It's now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. In Romans chapter one, I think it's fitting that we're reading the last bit, so we should go back to the very front and see this theme. Paul is writing in verse five, and he says this, He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Do you know what the Greek for all the nations is there? All the nations. It literally means all the nations. That every tribe, tongue, and nation could call out on the sacrifice and the reward of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel was not simply meant for one certain people group for all of history. This gospel is something that God wants all nations. Go therefore and make disciples. You'll be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes on you in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. It's meant for all men. It's always been meant for all men. We're not saved to sit around. We're not saved to just wait We're saved so that our lives can be a channel through which the spirit of God can flow into broken lives and broken relationships and heal wounds and bring people who are far off outside of God's covenant of peace into his covenant so that he can wrap his arms around those who've been lost and tell them how deeply he loves them and tell them his true purpose for their life. Too many people become Christians so they can go to heaven so they can get their ticket punched. Guys, heaven is not the reward. Heaven is heaven because Christ is the reward. You don't see people in heaven going, awesome, awesome, awesome is Tim the Almighty who's got great looks and a slim body. You don't see that. You don't read that. You hear, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, who is to come. The people with the crowns, they don't wear them saying, look at how shiny my rubies are. They take their crowns off and they fall on their faces and they throw them at the feet of the holy God. Because they are reached, they've experienced the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And guys, this gospel ultimately brings about life changes in his followers. 
if your life looks exactly the way it looked before you came to Christ, something is terribly wrong with your understanding of the gospel. It brings about life change. In James chapter 2, verse 18, James is writing about how faith changes us. And he says, someone may say to you, you have faith and I have works, trying to make a distinction. And James responds, well, show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. It brings about this life change. It makes us drastically different. It's, I don't know, what words could I use for it? It's so vastly different. It's like you're born again. It's like you're made into a new creation. The old things have passed away. And behold, new things have come. And all these things are from Christ, who's given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's made us ambassadors for him. So it's on his behalf, in the name of Christ, we say, be reconciled to God. Because he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And you see this last bit here. In verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, truth. This is an exclamation point. This is exciting. This should thrill us from the core to know that we've been made right with God. We see all of this and, and we get excited about it and it's, it's Sunday and so we've given God that one 162nd of our week and we're stoked to be a part of this and we love our church and we're here and we're raising our hands and we sing and we're excited about the gospel but ultimately Monday morning is coming. And so what good is it to look at this text if we don't ask the question, so what? So what? How does this impact our life? How does this change the way we live? One question. What is your sentence? How are you known? I've been thinking about it in my head. I've been mulling it over. And uh, one is... He counted the cost and gave it all for the cross. And then I got another one. I did. He saw the price and gave his life to Christ. These are all great questions. These are all great sentences. But here's another question. For some of us here today, that's not our sentence. And so what is your sentence maybe doesn't relate to you, but what about what do you want your sentence to be? Paul's overriding concern and motivation for everything he did was the gospel of Jesus Christ. What motivates you? This excitement should be an excitement that carries over throughout our week, that spills over onto those we love and spend time with. What is your sentence? What do you want your sentence to be? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who doesn't just stand idly by saying, come on, whenever you're ready, come on, and allows us to just continue in our sin on this course. 
Lord, we thank you that you're a God who reaches out in love and shows yourself to us. And doesn't just give us a high five and say, hey, you're in. But Lord, that you actually give our life meaning and purpose and worth and value. Father, I thank you for that. Lord, that's something that we should always be celebrating. I pray that you would give us a passion for your name. Lord, that we would be motivated by one thing, and that's to make you known, not ourselves. I want to take this moment for some of the people here this morning who maybe they've never made this commitment. Maybe they've never had the opportunity to say, you know what, I want Christ. I, want, I don't want myself anymore. I've seen myself. I've found my end. I want Christ. I want to experience that love. And so I want to invite you just to take this time. It's, it's easier done than said, we'll say. To take this time to know that your sin is what separates you from God. And so just take this time and just give it to God. Say, Lord, I know that I've broken this relationship. I know that it's my sin that separates me from you. And just confess your need to him, that you need him. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Only you can make this relationship right. And after you've done that, we call it repenting. It's you're walking in one direction and you turn a 180 degree turn and you move the exact opposite direction. You leave everything you were doing and you turn and you walk toward and with Jesus. You're no longer for yourself. And so you say, God, I'm giving you my life. I'm giving you my purpose. I'm giving you my passions. Will you take my life and make it all for you? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of, of grace, for the gift of confessing, knowing that you hear and that you make right. Father, would you give us a passion for your name? Would you stir up excitement in the people who may have prayed that prayer? Would you stir up excitement in those of us who didn't, but will step into that life? Lord, would you give us a passion for your name, not just in our head, but in our hearts. And may we live it out with our hands. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you did make that decision, or if you have decided, you know what, my life doesn't look enough like what it needs to, I want to recommit my life to Christ. In the back of the seat in front of you, there's this blue card. It's called First Steps. At Olive Branch, we believe that Christianity is to be lived in community. And so we want to be a part of that. We want to be your community and encourage you and equip you to live a life effective for God. And so if you fill out on the back, there's a small little portion and it says, I'm committing or recommitting myself to following Christ. Just give us some information here. It's not a whole lot. We don't ask for your mother's maiden name or your serial social number or anything like that. And go out to the, the information, the connecting points table outside. And go ahead and turn this in because we want to rejoice with you. We want to celebrate with you. And ultimately, we want to get you plugged in so that this isn't just a moment in your life, but that it's a turning point. We're going to give it back to the band. And what better way to react to the gospel than to celebrate it? Would you stand with us?